please open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9, we're continuing our study, and we'll read the chapter. I'm going to seek to get as far as we can in this chapter. Uh, There's a lot here, but I desire to take it all in one shot if God is pleased. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. Now Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting. And he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. He arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Now Jehu came out of the servants, excuse me, Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know very well the man and his talk. They said, It is a lie. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus he said to me, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Aram. So Jehu said, If this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city to tell it in Jezreel. Then Jehu rode in his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. 
Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company or the multitude of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send him to meet him and let him say, Is it peace? So a horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported and the messenger came to them, but he did not return. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. The watchman reported, He came even to them and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Then Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. Joram the king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, a Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by way of the garden house. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him in the ascent of Gur, which is at Iblim. But he fled to Megiddo and died there. Then his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his grave, which his fathers, with his fathers in the city of David. Now in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. A summary. Verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And Jehu entered the gate. She said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officers looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall 
and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank and said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore, they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant, by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, This is Jezebel. What a story in God's Word. What a shocking story, especially the end. Last week we looked at the introduction of two kings in Judah, the other Jehoram, and I did put another, uh, some few more copies of the, the chart of the kings. Maybe you want to look at that, just peeking at it as we work through. We looked at the other Jehoram or Joram, but that was the king of Judah, and we looked at Ahaziah, the king that followed him in Judah, and then today we come to this incredible passage, chapter 9, which shows uh, basically four points. Jehu is anointed by Elisha, or the, the son of the prophet, that's the first part, Jehu is anointed, and then these three murders. Joram, or Jehoram, king of Israel, is killed by Jehu. And then Ahaziah, uh, the king of Judah, is killed by Jehu. And then finally Jezebel, the queen mother, if you will, of Israel, is killed by Jehu. So the anointing, and then these three killings. And chapter 10 will continue. And I've given this chapter the title, Jehu, the Avenger of God. Jehu, the avenger of God, and we'll see that particularly as we move through the passage today. It is indeed a bloody passage, a passage about judgment, yet behind it and throughout we'll see the phrase, thus says the Lord, several times. Verse 3, thus says the Lord. Verse 6, thus says the Lord. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. Verse 25, the Lord laid the oracle. Verse 26, thus says the Lord, and and again, says the Lord, and then finally, according to the word of the Lord. So behind all of this bloodiness and these killings truly is the hand of God. And it's a theological um, view of history. That's how the author wrote it, so that we would see Yes, the hand of Jehu and the arrows, if you will, but behind that, the hand of God. So as we work through it, let's keep that in our minds. Well, verse 1, the only uh, mention of Elisha, and this is the study of the life and times of Elisha, and yet he is secondary to the Lord, of course, and, and not even close in emphasis, but he anoints He's called to anoint, uh, verse 1, now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets, the seminary students, the up and coming, the younger men, he was probably quite old at this time, 
And he said to that man, gird up your loins, get ready to go and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And maybe you want to peek in your Bibles in the back at your maps if you have them. And uh, for example, if you have the 12 tribes of Israel map uh, in the tribe of uh, Issachar, you can see Jezreel. And if you head east uh, to the to the very edge of Gad and right below Manasseh, you'll see Ramoth Gilead or Gilead there. And that's where he is heading. And we heard in the previous chapter that the king of Israel and the king of Judah went up to Ramoth Gilead to fight against uh, the Arameans and particularly Hazael. They were fighting in that area, which by the way, Ramoth Gilead, as a reminder, was sort of a trade hub. Uh, It was like an inland port where spices and things were traveling east. So there was taxation there, and they they fought in this location even 10 or 15 years earlier. Uh, it's It was a hub of business. It was the business hub, sort of the economic capital of that area, or at least a, a major um, center of trade. So it was important to lay hold of Ramoth Gilead. Verses 2 and 3, when you arrive, when that servant or that son of the prophet arrives, search out this man, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. Now, uh, truth be told, it took me several days to realize this is not the Jehoshaphat we read about, uh, the father of Jehoram, the king of Judah. This is a different Jehoshaphat. We don't know who he is. And once again, uh, people have the same names. We have a few Johns here. We've had a few other repeat names in our little church, but how much more in uh, among the people of God? This is a different Jehoshaphat, not the Jehoshaphat of Judah. And you can tell that because if you look at your chart, who was the father of Jehoshaphat? Early morning quiz. Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, yes. Asa, he was the father, not the son of Nimshi, which our verse, so this different Jehoshaphat had a different father, or at least in his lineage, this Nimshi. And he tells his servant to go, find that man, go in and bid him arise from his brothers and bring him to an interroom, get him to a private place, then take that flask of oil and pour it on his head and repeat the words, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. I kept thinking, that why would they anoint a son of Judah to be king in Israel? But as you read the passage, you just realize it can't be. He's he's not an um, uh, he's not from Judah. He's from Israel, and you'll see that as you work through this chapter. That is the son of Jehoshaphat, a different Jehoshaphat. Why we need to study more and read carefully to know who's who, and it's not easy. And we really know nothing else about this Jehoshaphat or this Nimchi. You can do a search. You will not find them. I looked in Bible dictionaries. There's no info about them. But they're mentioned here, the the father and grandfather of this man, Jehu, the avenger of God. So he is to be anointed. And he's at least an experienced officer because we'll read later that he was there when Ahab was, was fighting. So at least 10 years previous... He was fighting in that battle with Ahab. So he's an experienced military officer. He's called Captain 
We don't really know the ranks, but he had been there a long time and very experienced and very powerful. He was not a newbie and he was not a boy. He was not a green soldier. He had a lot of experience. But we see here that God is calling for the anointing of this king. And we don't see that often in scripture. We, we think of Saul being anointed, uh, David being anointed, but there's not many anointings. Uh, we did see that Elijah, of course, was called to anoint Hazael, which it seems we don't know if he did or didn't, but at least Elisha continues on. And we read that in the last chapter where he calls and sort of declares that Hazael will be king. And now he's maybe continuing also the work of Elijah in having Jehu anointed because back in First um, Kings we saw that God commanded Elijah to anoint Elisha, Jehu, and Hazael. So it's interesting, here it is many years later, and Elisha, remember, took up the mantle of Elijah, so he was continuing his work. So it's really not difficult to understand that if someone was charged with something, the person that follows them would actually complete the process. And that's how I view Elisha in this context. But he's called to have this man anointed king, apparently not from the the genealogical line of the kings of Israel. Again, we don't have details about him, but he was there, a, a military leader and a very able one, as we'll see. But as we think of this, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, have this man anointed. We could learn in the first place of, of seven from Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart or the king's anointing is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is in control of all authorities in this world, has been and will be. And that gives us comfort. It causes us to stand in awe of his sovereign power, his omnipotence. Asaph put it this way in Psalm 75, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. God is sovereign on his throne, and he obviously was intimately involved in the lives of the people of Israel and the kings of Israel and Judah in particular, But generally, we see his power and his control, and he uses kings to accomplish his will. And that, as we mentioned at the beginning, is why we see, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, he is guiding everything that comes to pass. And again, we stand in awe, we exalt in God's sovereignty over the leaders of the world, even wicked ones, even bad ones, he is in control. And because he is God. If he wasn't in control, would he be God? No. This man, Jehu, is the avenger of God. He's the scourge in God's hand. And view him in that way. So, Elisha told the man, go and anoint him. But did you catch that little phrase at the end? After you've anointed him, then open the door and flee and do not wait. It seems a bit odd Maybe, but as we read more about Jehu, 
I think I would tell the servant to get out of there real quick too because what might Jehu do from the what we read in the chapter? Is he a man of peace? No, he is a violent killer. He's God's assassin. And again, we're reading between the lines. Don't stick around. And why didn't Elisha go? Maybe he was old. We can guess. But he told that young uh, prophet to deliver the message and get out of Dodge. And I believe because it was dangerous. He was unpredictable. That would be my take on it. So verse 4, the young man, the servant of the prophet, he goes up to Ramoth Gilead. He went to the place of battle. Remember, that was the, the battle line. They were fighting against the Aramaeans. Hazael, who was also anointed or at least called by God, he goes to the battle line to find Jehu. When he gets there, verse 5, he came and all these captains of the army, the, the military leaders are together outside or in a tent or in, in some type of facility. They're sitting there and he says, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu says, which one of us? There's several captains here. Which one of us? And he said, for you, O captain. He knew who he was, whether God revealed to him that this is the man or he had seen him before. We don't know. But he knew and he declared, for you, O captain. He had a purpose and he went to do it and he found Jehu among the others. And God signaled him out for a purpose. Verse 6, he arose and they went into this house, a separate area, and he poured the oil on his head immediately. He didn't mess around. He immediately pours the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Now this Jehu would reign 28 years. He has a long reign. And he had a lot to do. Uh, and we'll see that. The servant expounds, or we had an abbreviated instruction from Elisha, just go and anoint and then run. But this servant is going to open it up, and we don't know why. It's not repeated exactly, but he's going to add a few words. He at least here adds the words, over the people of the Lord. And I thought we could think about this, that Jehu, it's not Jehu's people, but it's Jehovah's people. He's reminding him that these are not your people. They are Israel, the people of the Lord. And it's sort of a warning to Jehu, which you can debate. And when you read the end of his life, he's a mixed character. He does good in, for the purposes of God, yet he is evil, and we'll, we'll get to that. But at least he's being reminded here that it's the people of the Lord, not the people of Jehu. Verse 7, the, the servant here is continuing in after he anointed, uh, or even as he anointed, he's saying, thus says the Lord, verse 7, you shall strike the house of Ahab, your master. So again, he's not from Judah, he's from Israel. His master is Ahab. He's fighting for the house of Ahab. And get the next few words in verse 7. That I may avenge. That's why we said Jehu, the avenger of God. God is avenging, what does he say? The blood of my servants, the prophets. God is avenging his prophets. And the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of 
Jezebel. So God has a punishment, a judgment. He's going to avenge his prophets, his servants. He's going to punish Ahab and his wicked wife, Jezebel. That's God's plan. That's what's happening in this chapter. In Second Chronicles 22.7, we read these words about Jehu, whom the Lord has anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. Again, God had a plan. And we could note, as we've already said in our title, the Lord is the avenger of his people. The Lord is the avenger of his people. He's using Jehu, but he is avenging his people. And Jezebel, she had destroyed the prophets, remember? And and they were hiding from her because she had killed many of them, yet God had preserved some. She swore an oath to kill Elijah, and he was afraid of her because she was bloodthirsty. She had a thirst for the blood of God's prophets. She was very wicked. And we were shocked how afraid even Elijah was of her, but he knew she had a reputation to be a killer of God's prophets. And not only the prophets, but the people of God. The original prophecy against Ahab and Jezebel was because of what they did, and we'll see it as the chapter unfolds, with the man Naboth and his vineyard which they coveted, which, uh, excuse me, Ahab coveted, and Jezebel made the plan to have him murdered. And again, that's part of this judgment upon Ahab and his wife. The Lord is the avenger of his people, and even ourselves. We may think someone wronged us and so forth, but Paul told us, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's in Romans twelve nineteen. So in, in, in a particular point, we know that God avenges his people, even for ourselves. If we have been wronged, either someone's sin will be punished on the cross and they will be saved, or they will be punished in hell ultimately. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And these stories show us how God, whether he protects or allows his people to be killed, he will punish his and their enemies, ultimately. Verses 8 and 9, he continues, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free in Israel. I will Make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. I underline those words when I see them, shall and will. I shall and I will. God had a purpose and he would accomplish it to punish the enemies of his people. I shall do this, I will do this, and I will do this. It's God's purpose to use Jehu to punish the enemies of God's people. Now, he says that he's going to punish them in such a way, and he compares it to the house of Jeroboam and the house of Basha. And if you go look at what happened in those cases, they were very wicked idolaters and evil, and God obliterated the line of Jeroboam. And the same with Basha. His house was obliterated as well, meaning he had no followers. No one in those houses could rise up and continue 
their line because they were all destroyed because of their wickedness. God would do the same thing with the house of Ahab. And he continues, verse 10, The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. That was the end of what the the prophet had said. And then there's this little phrase, Then he opened the door and fled. So there was the prophecy to Jehu from the man of God. The man delivered it and he followed his his boss's advice and got out of Dodge. He opened the door and fled. He didn't stick around to see what he might say. He didn't get caught up in what's about to happen. And by the way, apparently in the Hebrew, in verse 10, the very first word in the Hebrew text is Jezebel. It's very emphatic. Jezebel, the dog shall eat. So God would punish Ahab and God would punish Jezebel in this horrific fashion. Verse 11 and 12. Now Jehu came out to the servants of his master. He was just anointed. He comes out to the servants, these servants of the king, Jehoram. And one said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to him, you know very well the man and his talk. And they said, it's a lie. Tell us now. So he, he tells, he's going to tell the truth. And he said, that is Jehu, thus and thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. He just gives those few words, even though he was told much more, he gives that little description that he is anointed king, and we're going to see their prompt response in verse 13. All these servants, and, and maybe the people around him, the other captains, they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps, apparently into this house or, what, or tent, whatever it was. There were some steps maybe coming up out of the dirt, out of the mud or whatever. They blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. Were they acting out of faith in God, that this is what God had said? Were they acting out of fear because you better get on the right side real quick? And I'm sure, and again, you read between the lines, what type of character Jehu probably didn't become the way he was overnight. He had had at least a decade or more of intense combat. He was a leader in the Israeli army and surely a bloody man, and they immediately, at least in God's providence, took their garments and laid it down so that he could stand on them, which was a sign of humility, and they were saying, yes, we we submit to you, and they declare, and they blow the trumpet so everyone knows, and maybe there was a particular, um, what's the word for a trumpet piece, Uh, a particular piece that they played when there was a new king, a coronation uh, trumpet piece. They're blowing the trumpet and, and, and shouting that Jehu is king. Verse 14, Jehu does not waste time. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. Jehu is making this plan of how he's going to kill Jehoram. 
Meanwhile, where's Jehoram? He's up fighting Hazael, God's scourge on Israel. It's the proverbial out of the frying pan and into the fryer. He, the, the king of Israel at the time, Jehoram, he's battling this Aramean attacker, and yet now his own people are coming to kill him. Verse 15, But King Jehoram returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds with which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Aram, repeating the words from 8, verse 29. We read that last week. He was already wounded. He was already suffering. He had to go and have a respite in Jezreel. Again, providentially, that's where he was located. In response... To the servant's cry, Jehu is king, verse 15 concludes with the phrase, So Jehu said to those people that declared him king, If this is your mind, if you're saying I'm king, then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it in Jezreel. Prove your faithfulness by not allowing anyone who heard what, what and, and saw what happened here to go spill the beans and tell Jehoram what's going to happen. Don't let anyone escape or leave. Don't let anyone sneak away. Deal with them. In verse 16, Jehu sets out. He rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel. For Joram was lying there. He was recovering from those wounds. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, also had come down to see him. So we've got the king of Israel and we've got the king of Judah in the same place. And when you looked at your map, you could see that Ramoth-Gilead, the distance to Jezreel, it's about 50 miles approximately. Although you probably, you took a boat, um, excuse me, <laughs> there's no boat here involved. You you had to travel um, through several territories to get there, but at least it's about 50 miles, so it's at least a two-day journey. So Jehu is on his chariot, with all of some or all of his company heading to Jezreel. Verse 17, as they get closer the next day probably, the watchman who's standing in the tower of Jezreel, he saw the dust being stirred up. He saw people coming from a distance. Maybe he had some type of magnifying telescope. He could see something. Maybe again, just the dust rising. And he saw the company of Jehu And he said, I see a company. I see in the column, I believe it says, a multitude. I see a multitude. And Joram, Jehoram, the king of Israel said, take a horseman and send him to to meet them and let him say, is it peace? He's already wounded. He's laying there. His friend, the king of Judah, is with him. And uh, what's happening now Maybe he's looking for an update from the battle against Aram. That would make sense. They're coming from that direction. Or he suspects something. We don't know. But he said, he says, is it peace? And in the next few verses, we find this concern for peace seven times. There's this repetition. Is it for peace? Is it for peace? Is it for peace? Is it for peace? And I thought we could learn this. Woe unto those who seek peace when their lives call for punishment. This Jehoram was wicked. 
He was evil in the sight of the Lord, and yet he sought peace when when his life and the lives of Israel called for God's judgment. And that's why this Jehu, the avenger of God, is coming. Yet he wants peace. Again, we don't know all the details. Was he thinking of the battle in Ramoth-Gilead or just for his own life or or what? But there is an emphasis on seven times looking for peace when his life did not call for peace. It called for the sword. Verse 18. So a horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Joram, is it peace? Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. Bring up the rear. And the watchman, so it's a sort of a strange phrase here, turn behind me. I think the Holman Christian standard is a little more illustrative. What do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. And if you've been around the military, you might have heard the, the phrase, fall in, fall in behind me, get, get behind me to the rear. That's what he said. What do you have to do with peace? Get behind me, or I may just take you out right now. And they did, and the watchman is, is seeing all this, so he reports, the messenger got to the people, but he did not return. Verse 19. Then King Jehoram sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Get behind me. Turn behind me. And he does the same thing. Verse 20, The watchman reported, He came even to them and he did not return. That messenger made it to the people of Jehu, but he did not come back. And... The driving of the chariot is is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. An interesting description. Sometimes the Bible mentions things and, and, and we're amazed and interested that apparently Jehu had a reputation for driving furiously, uh, pushing his, his troops, pushing himself, Maybe his chariot's leading the way. But we simply have these words, for he drives furiously. And when you read chapters 9 and 10, this man uh, had a uh, furiousness that is revealed even in his driving. So maybe it's a stretch, but consider this, that furiosity is no mark of grace. This man was doing, to a degree, the will of God. But when you see the summary of his life later on in the Scripture, he was not fully a man of God. And I think this description gives us a hint. And Why would it say he was known as this man who had furiosity? The Holman says, he drives like a madman, recklessly. He's really bloodthirsty at this point. And to a degree, that's what God called him to, but in himself, and we'll even see a reference to him in the Minor Prophets, that he really wasn't fully a man of God. Second Kings 11 describes him in this way, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. He was an idolater as well. He 
He did some half measures and got rid of some of the idols, the Baal worship, but he still worshipped the totem poles and the trees, and he led Israel into that sin. He was not a godly man, yet he was God's avenger. Verse 21. Then Jehoram, the king of Israel, said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. It just so happened. Where do they show up? Like we we read about uh, when the Shunammite woman and her son just happened to show up before the king the day that Gehazi was there. Well, here it, it just happens by chance, right? It just it just randomly happened that all this is happening in the little area of Naboth's vineyard. The whole point, part of the point of this judgment is because of what Ahab and Jezebel did to Naboth, having him murdered to steal his property. Now here are the descendants, the descendant of Ahab, his son Jehoram, along with Ahaziah, the king of Judah, in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Providential irony. Verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He knew one of the captains of his army. He knew who it was. Is it peace, Jehu? Did he mean, is it is it peaceful in Ramoth Gilead? I highly doubt that was his concern. Why was he charging forward and it could be seen furiously to get to the king? Again, you can read between the lines and chew on it and meditate on it yourself. But Jehu answered, What peace? What peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. Remember, woe unto those who seek peace when their lives call for punishment. He kept asking, is it peace? Is it for peace? No, it's not for peace because you're not a peaceful man. Your life doesn't call for peace. It calls for the judgment of God. And remember, uh, these Israelites and the Judeans here under the king, they were related because the king of Judah had married Athaliah, so there was this was the family relationships. They knew one another. They were cousins, uh, and yet here this awful, uh, grievous judgment is coming, all because of Ahab and Jezebel. We we read a little bit about Jezebel here, who had these harlotries. Now, at least it's this spiritual adultery that she was a, a master at because she led the king of Israel to worship Baal and, and he built a temple for Baal and he offered sacrifices and he and she both uh, funded the, the massive temple and all the priests of Baal and she was extremely wicked, spiritual harlotry and along with that went actual fornication but also her witchcrafts, her false religion, her false worship. She was grossly evil. We might think, what does that have to do with me? I'm not like Jezebel. I was reading First Corinthians this week, and I came across the verse 
that spoke about Israel craving for sin in the wilderness, and it said in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So lesson five, see Jezebel's example and flee temptation. We're told all through the Bible to flee from idolatry, to flee from false religion. Even in Hebrews 1, we're warned to flee from a mixed religion of angel worship and seeking to worship the true God. It's usually a mixture of true and false. And we can be warned by the wickedness of Jezebel. Don't fall into that. We must be all in and think biblically about God and morally act proper. We can be warned by her bad example. It's sobering that Israel Israel as a people could be so led astray by this, if you will, one woman. She was so influential. She brought in so much evil that God singled her out to punish her. See Jezebel's example and flee temptation. We'll wrap it up here momentarily. Verse 23. We won't finish today. Verse 23. So Joram reigned about and fled. He knew that death was in the wind. He fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. You bet when you live wickedly, you're going to be punished. When you sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Verse 24, And Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Joram between his arms and the arrow went through his heart and sank, and he sank in his chariot. What a vivid picture. Jehu was the avenger of God, a warrior of warriors, and he pulled back that bow with full strength, took aim, and the arrow went straight through King Jehoram's chest. Why? Because of his idolatry, because of his wickedness, following the idolatry of his mother, And all the wickedness that Ahab had done was now falling on the head of his son, Jehoram. Remember we said last week, quoting Deuteronomy, that God is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. He will not have his worship mixed with any other. That's why he punished his own people in such a really gruesome and and bloody fashion. We see this as grievous and, and, and bloody, but think of the cross that God had to punish and pour his wrath on his own son because of idolatry, because of fornication. We see God's wrath, and, and this can almost seem worse than the cross, but no, the cross is, is much worse, that God would pour out his wrath on his innocent son. If we need to see sin for what it is, it's grievous and black, and we, we thank God for the gospel that we could be forgiven because we're too much like these people. We're too much like them. And it would only take one little sin to call forth the, the judgment of God. What we noted today that the king's heart 
is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21.1 He guided and called forth Jehu by the anointing commanded by Elisha to punish Ahab and Jezebel and all the household and even Judah, which we'll hit next week. Second, we said the Lord is the avenger of his people. He'll use whatever he will. He will avenge his people when his servants are punished. We see it in the revelation that the the martyrs call forth, how long? Avenge us. How long will you not? And, And we say that today. We see God's people persecuted. And, and I read several uh, stories of, of in the commentators, two of them, they were reading this story in their families. And when, when Jezebel's killed, the kids said, yes. And there's a sense where we're, we don't relish when our enemy falls, but they deserved it. And God's judgment for his people is a sure thing, whether now or in eternity. We also said, woe unto those who seek peace when their lives call for punishment. Where's peace? Where's peace? You don't deserve peace, Jehoram. And we also noted, if his driving is like his life, that curiosity is no mark of grace. And then we said, see Jezebel's example and flee temptation. We'll wrap it up there. And and next week, we'll seek to finish the chapter. I thought we could make it. But there's a lot there um, as we considered Jehu, the avenger of God. Let's conclude with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is profitable to our souls. Lord, may we take the warnings from your word seriously. May we not have any idols. May they all underfoot be trod because the Lord is God. Father, May we be pure in our thoughts and our lives. May we be warned by this wickedness and particularly that we would have you first in our heart, that we would worship you alone as your word clearly calls us to do. May we not mix any false religion. May we not compromise. May we not drift, Lord, drift away, but may we cling to Christ and we thank you for the gospel We thank you for the cross of Christ, which is the only place that sin could be atoned for, where you've poured out your wrath on your Son for us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Again, may you help us to understand your word, to remember it, to improve upon it, to meditate, to talk about it, that we might do it and take the lessons that you would have us learn. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.